Welcome back to another episode of the Uptime Punks with the lovely Amanda Brock and Dundee, the caviar-eating cat. Um, in, in this episode, we're going to be speaking with, with Dundee about... Um, no, we're speaking with Amanda. Um, and this is... <laughs> it's, it's a really great episode because we speak about Guy X, Data Serenity. Um, open source. Anything else? Open source, of course. Source. And you know what's really nice? She's the pro Guy X open source person. We had previously um, lovely Carsten here, who believed everything to go with Guy X is a conspiracy theory. From well, let's not get too much into details. I got in trouble back then, <laughs> but yeah, um, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Cheers. So this is it, another episode of the Uptime Punks. It's International Women's Day. We were just remembered by our lovely guest, uh, Amanda Brook. She's the CEO of Open UK and what she does on a daily basis and what her agenda, forgive me the word, Amanda, is, <laughs> um, we will learn. But uh, yeah, first of all, hi, Amanda, how are you doing? I'm good. And thank you very much for inviting me along on International Women's Day. Yes, uh, was it actually planned that we did that we were recording on International Women's Day? Kind of. I, I'm not sure. Take the credit. Actually, yeah, of which is planned like this. We planned, <laughs> we're, we're Germanic, like Amanda said. We plan yeah. everything in yeah. advance. Maybe. I can already tell you where I'm going to be next year this time. So yeah, skiing somewhere in the Alps, having a nice, um, nice little um, Nutella pancake dessert. Yeah, that's into the very sun. detailed. Well, I actually, anyways, we should be recording another podcast uh, on in the eighth of March, uh, on the eighth of March, two thousand twenty twenty. Too. Um, but before we get there, um, yeah, maybe some obstacles on the way. Um, Amanda, so as you know, each guest uh, on our podcast gets warmed up with a couple of questions. And um, today I'd like to try out something slightly different, but still um, kind of along the same lines um, as we did. And I'd like to start with the most easy of all questions, Amanda. Mm -hmm. um, during lockdown, many people got some kind of a gadget, tech gadget, non-tech gadget, some kind of object that gave them some sanity during those crazy times or allowed them just to um, cope. Um, I know that humans and human contact is the most important thing, but gadgets as well are uh, sometimes helpful. So my question to you is, what is your favorite lockdown gadget? I didn't get a gadget, I got a kitten. <laughs> A, a kitten. fluffy, furry kitten, yeah. He's now a great big cat because it's a year later. <laughs> yeah. True. What is it called? What is it called, the kitten? What, the what kitten, who's now a cat, is called Dundee. Dundee? Pretty, Dundee, yeah. He's like, like, like crocodile Dundee. Dundee. Like crocodile yeah, Dundee. he's kitten Dundee. <laughs> kitten Dundee, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so he helps you to stay sane and um, he talks wake to me. you up in the morning, <laughs> jumping in your face. He will be on the podcast at some point. I'm sure he's quite well known and open source. He generally joins my talks and Excellent. he's much more popular than I am. Yeah, yeah. looking forward to Dundee. Um, uh, yeah, maybe we're maybe fumbling with the microphone a little bit so that we have to re-edit everything, but that's that's okay. Um, so now I'd like to fire some... Um... Actually, I should answer you seriously, right? Yeah. So partly because of him <laughs> and partly because of all the noise and everything with everybody being at home, I think my yeah. headset is probably the gadget that I've bought that has been 
most useful to me. Mm. Never used to wear one, and now I spend most of my day with it on. Okay, that's um, yeah, that's actually a good point because mine mine just broke, and now I have this ear in, and it's mm. not the same experience because they don't they don't cancel the noise as good as um, as those Beats by Dre. No branding, um, no sponsoring attached to this. Anyways, yeah, I'd like to fire some quick um, questions at in your direction, um, and you just answer what comes first to your mind. Uh, Sounds like a psychological test. <laughs> yes, um, maybe. Susanna Kass, one of our um, fellow Uptime Punk hosts, she did a very... Um, and actually, I dedicate this oh, kind Tim, of... Tim, don't get into it. Oh, I will actually do it, Paul. I will do it. Okay, so, uh, do it. I dedicate this to Susanna Kass. And um, my first question, Amanda, is how do you eat your Oreo cookie? I am allergic to gluten, so I don't. There is gluten in the Oreo cookie. I didn't know that. Um, I thought exactly, that were like... Yes. Okay, okay. That backfire, Tim. There you go. That, 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 yeah, that kind of... Yeah, it was not the expected outcome. So I can't do I can't do any cold reading on you now, Amanda, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> what do you like more, jazz or classical music? Uh, neither are really my bag, but I would probably go classical before jazz. Excellent. Would I? Excellent. It depends on what it is. Okay. Who's your most admired person in tech at the moment? Mm. I really admire someone I used to work for, uh, a guy called Mark Shuttleworth. Um, I admire him because I think he's really visionary and I, I have like a huge amount of respect. Having worked at the coalface with him, I have a huge amount of respect for him. Um, let's go with him. Okay, so we, we can talk later about what he does and how he inspires mm -hmm. you. Um, next question, Apple or Windows? Microsoft. Okay, so Apple. Okay. But really, um, you can see what's sitting on my shoulder here. I have a tux on my shoulder, so I'm really going to go Linux. But if I have to go Apple or Microsoft, <laughs> I'm going Apple because I like the devices. Okay, okay. What's eating the world currently, software or hardware? Good question. Um, I think software has probably had its lunch. I think hmm. hardware is beginning to snack, and I think open source is what's eating the world. I love that. I love that answer. Um, the internet to you, is it a world apart or is it a public space? It's a public space. It's a public space. Okay. Um, that These were the tricky questions. You managed that very well. I could fire some <laughs> others, but... Um, Maybe Don't get we'll... my personality profile, though. <laughs> no, no, no. We, we would need to edit them out. So... Um, Amanda, we'd like to situate you kind of in a in a certain generation for our audience. And the question mm -hmm. we, we, we never ask the age of our guests because that's rude. And um, but we ask instead something else. We ask, uh, what's what was your first computer? Ah, uh, so mine is still in a box in my parents' attic because <laughs> it didn't run. It never worked. And it was a ZX Spectrum. <laughs> Okay, so everyone curious about Amanda's assumed um, generation, uh, Google that. And why did it never work? What, what was wrong with it? Never booted, don't know. And that's one of the problems that people have. If you don't have the right support around you as a kid to help you as you're learning, 
Mm-hmm. And I guess I was probably quite early stage in wanting a computer. Mm-hmm. So it would have been one of the first home computers that was available for kids, aging myself further. But there was nobody in the vicinity, no adult who could fix it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it went back in the box and I didn't do much with it. Or with okay. computers. How about your second computer then? Wow, it was a lot later. Many, many years later. Um, do you, do you regret been... those years now? Well, I do and I don't. Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, and We only have so much time, I know. But in my high school, I was taught to code, but I was taught to code in binary. Mm-hmm. And as a person, I'm really fast. So I think things through and I think about them for a while, then I do them. But it means that I make mistakes. I can also touch type, which means I make even more st- mistakes, right? So when I work in a software company, everybody sort of gathers around and tries to work out what I've done because I would be QA if I had a role in engineering. In my high school, I was able to spend a year in a class doing code where my code never ran, not once, Mm. and nobody could work out why. So I was told to stay away from computers. Nobody could work out why. Yeah. But but you know what's interesting? I'm an enigma. (laughs) But there's this thing called clean code, right? Right. So it's about and, and 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 they say I don't know who the guy is who's like the 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 for the for for like the front runner of this, but yeah. he said um, it's not about that the code runs because there will all, all, always be somebody who will make it uh, work, mm-hmm. but it's about being um, intelligible, understandable to others, like yeah. intuitive. So you, you go through the code and you say yeah okay mm-hmm. right yeah that makes sense. And um, all right. So um, even if you have many typos in it, mm-hmm. there may be someone uh, watching, seeing your code, and saying, "Yeah, yeah, okay, makes sense. Yeah, here's a little error, but we can work that out." Mm-hmm. And so he says that's that's more important, actually. So um, I don't know if this uh, concerns you or not. <laughs> but, but the concept uh, probably didn't exist at the time. But I haven't ever been asked those two questions in such close proximity or those two statements for me to mm-hmm. have realized what a disaster my childhood was in terms of learning to code. Okay. And so you went on to change that, becoming a lawyer and eventually the I still the CEO. can't code. I still don't code. Yeah. Um, me, me neither. Yeah. I, I mean, I, no, not really, but no. <laughs> I don't know. Paul, what about you? Can you code? Um, actually, so um, I started <laughs> with... Code. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I started with coding when I did my first homepage myself. Um, and that was back then with Microsoft front page, but really in the early days. So you still had to like put the code in yourself and then the homepage gets created. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so I go really way back, but then I stopped at some point because it just like wasn't my thing. Um, yeah, that this is this is when it comes from me. I, I had computers from very super young age. Um, yeah. I remember my first one was like bigger than me. <laughs> And I was able to play Flight Simulator 92 on it. That's hardly imaginable nowadays. A computer um, and, and I had a joystick, which was the size of this Pepsi bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was sitting like this in my in my room. And um, and I remember also the first time we connected to the internet it was like, uh, I think me and my father took 18 hours and four trips to the electronic <laughs> shops um, to, to get it yeah. running. And then, and then some image. It's, I, I think that it was similar to when the Mars rover just landed on Mars, when mm. the image gets transferred in like little pixels. And, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I guess what you really want to know is that it transformed. And it transformed for me much, much later 
although I, you know, obviously use computers in between times, but I guess in the mid nineties, I did a course as part of a master's um, on internet law. And it was the first internet law course in the UK. It was taught by a man called Ian Walden, who's now the, the head of the, the law school at Queen Mary, uh, the commercial part of it. And um, Ian taught me internet law. I then started to give legal advice around internet law, 96 onwards. And in 1999, I joined a company called uh, FreeServe, Mm-hmm. which was owned by Dixon's, the electrical retailers. Back then, they were bigger than MediaMart. They were the biggest hardware distributor in Europe. And they'd set up an ISP, which was IPO'd in 2000. It was the first big IPO in Europe. And there were 12 of us sitting behind that team at the time. So it was an outsourcing agreement and 12 employees. I think they floated it for something like $6 billion, if my memory is right, mm-hmm. back in the day. So, so, so it's interesting. So I'm, 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 I'm leaning myself out of the window now. Thin eyes, but so your frustration of not being able to run your first computer, mm-hmm. not having someone to teach you to code, and like when you coded, it was like clean code wasn't around then, so nobody actually told you that your code actually could have worked and was perhaps even good code. So you started working on law and still penetrated the tech space. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Um, it wasn't done with planning and intention, but it was obviously where I was meant to end up. Cool, cool. So you were meant to end up CEO of Open UK. I believe That's so. why they always say there's more than one road that leads to Rome. <laughs> you see? Yeah, yeah, I probably was, actually. It's, a, it's an interesting one. I joined a company in 2008 called Canonical, which mm-hmm. is... I think the UK's biggest open source company still, probably one of the biggest in Europe, if not biggest in Europe. And I joined them as employee 165 uh, in February 2018, uh, 2008 rather, um, 13 years ago. And I was there for five years. I Mm. had, in between being at the ISP and being there, I'd worked on all sorts of different things with a, a strong expertise around tech. And I was brought in to be a commercial and corporate lawyer and to build the legal function and to manage all of that. And then I sort of surprised everybody by falling in love with open source. Okay. But, but tell me a little bit about uh, law and tech. So yeah. how you, you were um, doing the first course on internet law back mm-hmm. then. So how, how, was, how was that? How do I imagine this context? Yeah, I think it's, so you can't do legal stuff if you don't understand the subject matter that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Because what you have to do is be able to assess risk and you have to be able to describe the risk and the opportunity. And to do that, um, you know, questions like your question about uptime For me, back in 99, 2000, joining an ISP, I had to be able to write down what uptime meant and define it and help to create the service levels around it. And that has to work in both a business and a technical context. Mm -hmm. So what happens for technology lawyers is that you end up almost being like a translator and you sit between the engineers and the business guys and the BD people and you have to learn to speak all the different languages and translate from one to the other so that you can write down 
whatever the deal is, whatever the realities of the, the technology are, and also help people to assess what the risks are. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I was involved at a particularly interesting time, because if you think about that, there was no internet law. So all these laws that people are talking about now in terms of social media and whether we should be able to repress people's freedom of speech, whether the social media companies should have liability, those laws are all 20 years old and they were all created around that time. So we didn't just get to be tech lawyers, we got to be tech lawyers who were shaping the policy that created these laws. And they're probably long overdue an update. 20 years is too long for anything. But what you see, and you see it constantly with technology, is the laws, the regulators, they have to run to try and keep up. But there's this whole band of legal people working on the new technologies. Often these days they have product lawyers. We didn't used to have that then. But mm-hmm. you're learning about these new technologies. You're shaping how they work so that they're legally compliant. And you are trying to change the laws and create the laws that are needed as you go forward and you develop. So things like AI and ethics, that's one of the big spaces now, right, for the people who are shaping it today. Mm -hmm. So in the end, is everything a question of the law, the the code of conduct that we impose or give ourselves? Yeah, a lot of lawyers would tell you that it is. I think the other way around. I think that... um, Very Eastern, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we now have a, a giant kitten joining us. Um, I think it's the other way around. I think the developers own it. I think the engineers and the code is what owns it and that the law has to be shaped to that. Yeah. So I, I, I know a lot of lawyers wouldn't agree with me, but what I've really enjoyed about my experience in technology is trying to find creative ways to make things work. So, you know, when somebody comes to you as the company lawyer and says, can I do X? Instead of saying no, X is illegal, what you do is you say, why, why do you want to do X? And it yep. turns out actually Y will get the same result, but you just have to take them on that journey and get them to that place. Yes. And that Y is legal. So you have to understand it. Are you laughing at me or the cat? No, I'm, 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 I'm laughing because a joke came to my mind related to what you're saying. There's this joke going, um, the three students, one of them is med- medicine. The other is uh, the other is like psychology, and and the other is law. And so the the the, the dean uh, of the faculty comes and says, "By tomorrow, you have to learn by heart the whole telephone book." And the medicine student goes, "Okay," uh, and he goes and, and and starts. And the psychology student goes and and says, uh, uh, well." Let me give it a try. And so and then the law student comes and says, so why should I learn the telephone book by heart? It's not a good joke, but it's 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 um it's interesting. That's not the punchline. No, that's that's the punchline, I'm afraid. I'm really sorry, but no, it, it's, it works better Apologies. in German. Though. It works better in German, but the thing is, like, um, lawyers are always to be like, Why should I do that? Why does yeah. so always yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Be question everything? Absolutely, yeah. uh, let me clarify this. This must have been a Swiss joke, not a German joke. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sorry for the lack of. Lack of humor in the Swiss yeah. language. Okay, um, I was expecting not. something more like the you know what do you call a thousand lawyers under the ocean or a good start type joke. You know something that people would at least <laughs> smile when they heard it. 
Yeah. Well, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm not allowed to make jokes about lawyers because my second half is a lawyer. So okay. um, my um, father's a lawyer too, and he had all those <laughs> jokes that about lawyers. Explains a lot about both of you. There's yeah. nothing funny about there's nothing funny about lawyers. That's the problem. It just always gets serious. Um, but but, let, but let's talk about some other things. Um, Amanda, um, Gaia X, our mm. favorite topic. Yeah. Um, so Gaia, um, what made you guys be one of? I would say you guys are actually the pioneers in this lovely island which we all call home. Um, the island which decided to separate itself from the rest of the world. And um, you guys decided you want to be part of the bigger project. So um, what makes you be the pioneer? Why do you guys want to be part of Gaia-X? And what's the vision that you see in Gaia-X? And yeah. what is Gaia-X to you? Because everybody sees thing. Gaia-X as a very different thing. Some people see it as a platform. Some people see it as a <clears throat> power struggle of Europe trying to regain control of the internet. Um, and then uh, another one which we've come up across by was that... Um, it's basically a community project which is open for all. Everybody should come together, work together, all hands on, and let's have the European spirit where we're all one big family and try to create something great. But I would like to hear from Amanda Brook, what do you see Gaia-X as? I see Gaia-X as something that is possible because of global collaboration in open source. So whether you're looking at Gaia-X, or the bifurcation of the internet in Asia and China, neither of those would be in any way attainable at a reasonable cost and at a reasonable pace unless they were built on open source software. And that open source software has come from the diversity of the collaboration that is global, that is what open source is. It's not local source, it's open source. It's something that's, you know, a global phenomena and diverse. So step one, I think that my interest comes from the fact that it has to be built on that to be sustainable or achievable. And then step two is that for Europe, we've seen this shift to data and digital sovereignty to use yet more jargon where Europe wants to re-establish control over its infrastructure, it wants to re-establish control over data, whether that's for commercial purposes or citizen data and privacy. It wants to bring that home and it wants to bring that home because there's been a lot of shift and change across the globe. So Brexit comes into that because Brexit is a really definable geopolitical shift, but we see more of that between Europe and China, Europe and the US, the US and China. So all of that is going on, all of that is causing laws to be made, back to laws, but laws to be made all over the world that affect people's data. And I don't think it's entirely surprising that we're seeing blocks, whether it's the EU or the UK or you know, a Pacific group or whoever it is, we're seeing blocks looking locally and wanting sovereignty, wanting control to protect their citizens and their revenue generation. So I don't think that's surprising. And that, to me, is what it's evolved from. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily about the big tech companies, which I think is what you were alluding to before, and bringing everything into local organisations. But it is about localising the control 
And when we talk in Gaia X, I repetitively hear European um, principles. It's not even standards, it's European principles. So we're going to build this in line with European principles. And I think that a lot of that goes back to the citizen protection. Now, from Open UK and the UK's perspective, I believe it was really, really important for us to be there. Um, I think they, they described us as a lifeline for the UK at the, the launch of the first day members. And it was important to me that we were that, that lifeline and we were at the table because we've left the EU, but geographically, as you've pointed out, the UK is still where it's always been. It's still in Europe. We're still part of uh, a continent. And it would be very surprising if over time we don't engage with our neighbours geographically and in business and in trade. And that trade is going to be trade in data. So we're going to have to be able to work with, work on, work in Gaia-X. And it would have seemed to me as an open source organisation leading the way for the UK's open technologies, so open hardware as well, and of course open data, that if we weren't at that table, you'd be, you should be asking me why we weren't. Um, it shouldn't surprise anybody that we're there and that we're very actively engaging. Well, I think the government is just still too busy to figure out who owns the oysters, which are in the North Sea. But um, <laughs> that's a different story. Um, everything positive also has something negative. And um, GaiaX, there's a lot of struggles which we see in the project. Well, project management has changed now. Um, but wh where would you see, um, where would you say you see yourself as a member as well? Mm -hmm. the, the biggest, the biggest sort of struggles along the path in order to create the project which is envisioned. Because um, well, we know from Andreas, which was the update we had last week, which was basically that uh, the platform should be available. What was it, Tim? Um, August, September. Yeah, quarter three, third quarter this year. Yeah, some front um, end visible and uh, yeah. So, but where do you see yourself? Where do you see? Um, I mean, for you looking at it as a non-Germanic, because the Germanics are the ones planning it with the French, which is a, a program for disaster. Um, where do you where do you see? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, oh, I, I mean, you, you slipped yeah, you know, that but, quite casually. <laughs> I love it. I slipped it quite casually because, like. I mean, um, that's that's a different topic. I mean, we saw how good they were in organizing the vaccines. But anyways, um, going from that perspective, where do you see the biggest challenges for the project itself from your perspective? Oh, it's going to be full of challenges. It's an enormous project and it has a lot of participants and it is trying to scale very, very quickly. I hope that Andreas would tell you, if it's my Andreas, that one of the benefits Open UK has brought is that we're already quite engaged on the open source side and around the, the, the governance of how you manage an open source project, because that isn't magic that needs to be, uh, it's not a new spell, you know, that, that particular fairy dust is in existence and it's something that we are able to sprinkle all over the project. So I hope that we will add a lot on that, that front. Um, it, how could you ever build something like that from scratch without it being really, really difficult and involve lots of people collaborating in it? I mean, only well, the Germans would take that on, right? Well, well actually, the, so, the, so the way I understood it was like um, when the first met, first meeting, you know, everybody, okay, what are your ideas? And it's like you're creating this pizza, right? 
But then everybody says, oh, well, I would like to have some tuna on it. So you throw tuna on it. Oh, I like some pepperonis. You throw pepperonis on it. At the end, you have like this pizza. You can't even stuff it in the oven anymore because everybody had so many ideas. Mm. So I think that's the point reached end of last year. And this is where people um, across the industry started getting their doubts in it. But, um, of course, the hardcore guy, Exxons, as we call them, the hardcore warriors, they still believe in it. And um, that's how they're pushing the project forward. And yeah, we're but- if you think about that, sorry to interrupt you, but if you think about that, that is by its nature what we've been doing in the open source community for the last decade, right? So the hardware piece is obviously still evolving. If you look at any of the significant open source collaborations, look at something like OpenStack, where you bring together competitors, you bring together organizations from multiple verticals, you get them to collaborate, but you get them to collaborate at a level on the stack where it's non-differentiating, so that by bringing their expertise, bringing their money, you know, bringing the many eyes into that piece, you can create more faster and more efficiently, but then you accept that people will differentiate further up the stack, and that that's the learning they'll have to go through, and that they won't do easily without a significant input from open source because we've spent so long learning how to do it and how not to do it. That's yeah. the, the sort of fairy dust that I'm talking about that the what, open source community will bring. What do you mean by differentiation? Like brand differentiation? Like in that ecosystem, feature, every node? Feature, in, feature yeah. differentiation, that's where you do the things that make you different from your competitors yeah. at that higher end of the that's, stack. But you create that's a what creates value in the end as well. Yeah, and that's a huge... Um, I think Marco Bohm, German economist, I always get this wrong, but he calls it something like non-permanent um, institutional collaboration. It's something along those lines, non-differentiated. So you create this base point that you all need, and it becomes a de facto standard without going into all the standards bodies and the IP, but you create something useful that you all need, and you do it collaboratively and collectively rather than each going off and creating something different. And that's what I think will, will shake out for the base point of Gaia-X. And that's that's going to be the significant step they take when they get to that point and they understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, it's great. I mean, Gaia-X is a great creation and we all hope that it works out because it would be great. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the greatest things behind it is actually European spirit behind it. It, it, it literally shows how Europe should be how the countries should work together, but at least um, now the tech um, firms are coming together and trying to create something together. So that's, um, and we don't care about Brexit, which is another great one. So that's good that you guys are getting involved. Yeah. It's a Tim question is of- about to ask a very cheeky question. I can see it from his face. He's preparing. He's, when he starts playing with his beard, you know that you're in trouble. Um, but <clears throat> So this is one of the projects you guys are involved. Is there any other projects? Um, where you guys are heavily involved from Open UK side. Yeah, yeah, many. So we, what we do is, uh, John LeBan, who you know, coined the phrase yeah. the three opens. So we focus on the three opens, software, hardware, data. I think we're different from the other industry bodies across Europe. And I think we're different because our focus, to me, is more forward-looking. They tend to focus on the local companies that work in open, whereas we focus on the business of open in our country, right? So in our geographical area. So we don't just say we're set up as an industry body to represent these companies. We represent the people working in it and the projects as well. And I think for a lot of the 
the stuff that in particular the younger developers work on and the cloud facing stuff, a lot of that is international companies, people working in non-technology companies and we bring them together. So I, I think that's where we really are different and that we look at the three opens and we look at the business of open. We do everything around three pillars, all of our activities, all, all of our um, events are around these three pillars and the community, legal and policy and learning. Um, and I guess that that's sort of significant because we build the community to have influence. We use the scale and the, the impact that that community has to assert that influence, whether that's in responding to government legislation so this morning I was on a call with a bunch of our lawyers who are looking at the cabinet office and the procurement terms that government use. So we're responding to their green paper, which we have to do this week. Um, on the policy side, that's where it really gets to be quite good fun. And Gaia X is part of our cloud policy work, so our participation in that. We've got two other significant policy initiatives. One is emerging telco and you probably know that the uk is quite uh, at the forefront of emerging telco so open ran and 5g and then we also have a truly exciting project that i will not be able to give the detail you are going to want because i'm not technical enough but we submitted on thursday a proposal to cop 26 and the proposal we submitted is to build the blueprint for the data or computer center of the future, which is going to be released Creative Commons and available for everyone to take. And the idea is that we build a model on the three opens, which will have a edge-based 5G enabled data center. Rather than building data centers from scratch, it will repurpose existing um, existing properties that aren't being used, so derelict properties, empty properties, bringing it closer to the consumer. It will run on um, sort of software hardware data, reducing carbon emissions, and probably lean heavily on Open Compute's work. Open Compute is one of the partners. We're also working with IT Renew, um, Ali Fenn at IT Renew. So we'll work quite a lot on um, the, the circular economy there. We're working with some of the energy companies. We've engaged with a, a startup called Octopus Next Zero, which is a spin out from Octopus Energy. And we're looking at how we can use renewable energy in our data center and then take the, the heat, the outputs, the emissions and, and use this in a different way and use this in putting it back into the, the grid, into the district and doing something community focused. So this is our Nirvana project for COP26. Oh, I love it. It's great. I mean, um, if you need some ideas, I mean, we came across so far uh, lobster farms uh -huh. from the from the nice. lobster farms we came across. Yeah. Tim, what was the other thing we had the other week? Some kind of um, some kind of plants um, being <laughs> in a in a in a greenhouse powered like uh, heated by heat waste of data centers. Yeah, but it's really great. yeah, some really great stuff. Um, obviously, the, the most common one, I guess, would be district heating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Waste. yeah. Uh, so we're, we're looking at things like that. Yeah. So the, the, the Netherlands, they use, I've not heard of lobster before, but for the hospital. Netherlands use it, yeah. And yeah. for growing and uh, in Sweden, they heat swimming pools. So, you know, those kind of projects. So what we've done is created as a smorgasbord of good stuff that's around using open pulled it together to create this model which we will share with the world it'll be our gift to the world 
um, and hope to bring it into COP26. But then we've also snuck that into our third piece, which is the education side. And um, we are doing a kids course with a summer camp and a competition. And what we're going to do with that is bring sustainability into it. So th there's 10 lessons which will teach kids digital skills. It will teach them about the open source definition, but it's also going to have an element of sustainability. And the competition will be around designing something to promote sustainability. So we'll, we'll bring that all into COP26 in November. Mm -hmm. So, so it's so, a project or two. Sustainability as in uh, code efficiency, sustainability as in just like designing sustainable tech, green IT, or is, 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 is that more or less open? I think probably the main goal will be carbon neutrality. And it's interesting, we were talking about this just earlier this afternoon. Christian Perino, who is our sustainability lead and who is working with the partners, bringing them together into the consortium for this, we were, we were discussing how best to do this so that we end up not having every child doing a, a recycling project. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, you know, I, I will come back to you and get some more of your good ideas as we progress it. Yeah, um, let, let's just get like a bit um, controversial, like for a quick second, because then I can hand over to Paul again. No, because I, I saw you recently wrote an article, I b believe it was in, um, I forgot which platform. Sorry, I would have done the shout out. But basically, you mourned you called out the lack of digital strategy in in uh, in the UK. Yep. Uh, so what what what's grinding your gears most? Is it that? Is it the lack of digital strategy in the UK, or um, because you you could actually say it's not the role of the government to have digital strategy whatsoever? It's the role of well, uh, the society and organizations like yours to push yeah. that forward. Uh, I, I don't then, disagree. Yeah, but then again, you're you're on that you're on that side on does tech drive law or should law, uh, you know, I personally believe that law is always like ten years behind and then. Yeah. But, but yeah, let, let's just like okay. your rant right now. Okay, the stage my is rant. Yours. So the stage is mine. Um, yeah. I'm pretty tired because last week we did that submission to COP26 and on Wednesday we're launching a report and we're launching phase one of our report, which I, I know you guys are probably not aware of. And the report is called State of Open, the UK in 2021. And phase one, which we're launching on Wednesday, will be an overview of the existing knowledge and the existing data, but cut for the UK. So looking at it from a UK perspective. Mm. And without giving too much away, the European Commission has been working for the last two years on a report on open source software. They released on the 5th of February the, the data around that. Um, and it's one of the drivers actually that got me into Open UK is that I wanted to make sure that that work wasn't going to be lost in the UK post Brexit and that we engaged with it. So although the, their report is delayed and hasn't been released, they, the data, the numbers have been released and we've been able to apply the European Commission's formula and numbers to the UK because we're no longer in it, we're rest of world. So what we have done is create this report that looks at the value of open source if we look at current measurements to the UK. We're going to do two more phases. We're going to go out in Q2 and look at adoption in the UK. And then in Q3, we're going to look at a totally different way of valuing it 
So instead of valuing it by the inbound and the code going in, we're going to try and find a way to look at the value generated from the platform economy, from the use of open source, and mm. what that really means to our economy. So why am I doing all of this? Why am I tired? Why am I driving all of this? <laughs> I'm driving it because the UK government will have a digital strategy. It might not be tomorrow, but they will have one at some point this year or early next year. Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland are all either in process of creating a devolved one or already have one. In Northern Ireland's case, they have one, but it's going to renew later this year. I want to make sure that open source is as far as I can have it at the centre of that digital strategy. Now, I think it's fair to say that the, the UK is one of the world's biggest contributors to open source, which you probably don't know. And not many people respond to that when I tell them because we haven't made enough of a song and dance about it. We have a mm -hmm. huge, huge development community, not just in the software side, but in hardware and we're a world leader in open data. And we've mm -hmm. not pushed it hard enough. Before Brexit, we were the biggest contributor to open source in Europe. Germany was second, France is then quite far behind in third place. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really matter how you define that, whether it's lines of code, number of developers, mm -hmm. the, the UK was number one. So outside of the EU, we've got a global position of excellence here. We are a center of excellence. And I really want to make sure that we recognize that in our strategies and we help it to flourish. And we help it to flourish by making the UK a great place to do open in. We encourage entrepreneurship in it. And we make sure that as we're educating kids, getting back to my high school teacher here, but as we're educating kids, we're giving them the right digital skills. So yeah. they're not just well, learning to code. Well, I don't want just, you can't just, you can. I would prefer that they don't just learn digital skills as in coding a language without understanding that it's open source and what the values of open source are and the values of collaboration and diversity, transparency, building trust, all those things that matter about open, those are mm -hmm. what we need to teach them as well mm -hmm. as just this is Python. Yep. So, the so why. that's my rant. Yeah. <laughs> the why and the how and do it well. Well, that's as close as you'll get me to yeah. ranting, I think. It kind of sounded like a mission statement. To Did it? No, really? No, no it's, my, just, it's my personal beliefs. It's my personal yeah. beliefs, which are very closely aligned to the organizational beliefs, which is probably not that surprising. But it's something I feel really, really passionately about and which I spend an awful lot of my life trying to make happen. Mm-hmm. That's great. And I think when it comes to passion, we come also to an end. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sorry to cut you off here. No, that's perfect. We'd love to have you back another time. Um, well, because we also want the listeners to passionately listen to our podcast. And yeah, as no, I no, said, that's good. The, rankings, the rankings are not so great after 45 minutes for all you haters out there. Um, then just don't listen to the podcast. Um, yeah, so we always <laughs> unsubscribe. Um, so coming to this I don't point, think you should um, be saying that. Well, I don't care. It's fine. <laughs> we're, we're just very Germanic about. It. If you don't like it, then you don't oh, like it. Okay, we, we, are, we are proud of our download numbers, but um, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, coming always, the last word is always about a lovely guest, and we would love you to leave some passionate words for the generations to come. And yeah, the stage is all yours. Oh my goodness. Um, as it's International Women's Day, and we don't focus 
on diversity within Open UK as in just being about getting women into tech or people from ethnic minorities. We've got a more broad view and we look at things like social mobility and neurodiversity as well. What I would like to leave them with is that the opportunity that open source will give you, whether it's software, hardware or data, that opportunity of open is going to allow you to build skill sets that will be the jobs of the future but will also in, allow you to meet people, to engage, to interact with people all across the globe and have some really good fun while you learn and to become part of a community. So I would really encourage you to go and have a look at that. Do it. Thank you. <laughs> Do it. Good. Thank you, Amanda. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks you very here. much, guys. Nice to meet you both. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. All right, Tim. So that was a really great conversation we had there with Amanda. What are your takeaways from that episode? Mm, interesting enough, I think um, it's funny to see how lawyers uh, shape tech. <laughs> and um, yeah, I guess it's uh, it's interesting to see that the UK still has some place in European principles and values. Um, and yeah, what what is my takeaway that I should maybe get um, into law because I'm already in tech, so but into law because then I'll be able to feed my cat on caviar. Well, maybe I have to buy a cat first, but um, other topic. What about you, Paul? My takeaway is that um, no matter what the UK government does in terms of Brexit, um, there's still British people with a bit of um, sense and common sense that want to get involved in the things that actually matter. So GAIAX is one of them, which just showcases how the European Union and the European principles will always um, stay strong and we always be united and always work together in order for the greater cause. And this is, I think, what GAIAX stands for across the board. However, to give it away already, Amanda's going to be back for another of the Good Morning Europe X sessions later on this year. Mm -hmm. And um, we hope you guys enjoyed it. Please feel free to subscribe. And if there's anything else you guys want to reach out, just find us on LinkedIn, Uptown Punks Official. And yeah, you can follow us on Spotify, Google, and on Apple. And check and out we wish you all... in the... Yeah, and check out Open UK. And yeah, thank you so much. Take care.